we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm going to have some wine now. Three minutes early. Thanks, everyone, for doing this. Uh, Felicity, where are you calling us from? I'm calling you from um, my flat in North London, um, which has become all too familiar to me in the last four <laughs> months. Um, so, yeah, I can't sound very happy about that fact, I'm afraid. It's quite a nice flat, but I'm, I'm over it, as they say. And you appear to be in a kitchen. Is that a Zoom backdrop or is that your kitchen? <laughs> if it were a Zoom backdrop, it would be considerably better appointed. It would be Nigella Lawson's kitchen with a large marble island. No, this is my actual <laughs> kitchen, the extent of my kitchen. This is basically my flat, you can see. Oh, I see. You've had your flat converted into a it's kitchen. It's just an enormous kitchen, of... <laughs> yeah. I, I just sleep okay. by the dishwasher. That's, that's right. my life. Dan, where are you? I'm up in Edinburgh. So uh, Edinburgh. Wow. Yeah. It's quite nice. Is the sun shining? The sun's shining. The Scottish government, unlike the English, doesn't appear to want to kill us all immediately. So that's lovely. <laughs> that is um, nice. Of you know, I went out for a walk today and bought some lovely wine for this very, you know, very event. And yeah, it's all going quite well. So I've got wine. You've got wine. John, have you? What have you got I in your flask? I'm, I'm afraid. Well, I've just got water in my flask, but it, I might get. I might have to. I might have to remedy that. One of the one of my hand, my young servants might bring me one in a moment. <laughs> If I knock on the floor, they'll know all dad wants his beer. But Felicity, I can see you are sipping a concoction. What is it? Yeah, concoction is probably the right word. I might not go as far as cocktail and sipping gingerly, I would say. Um, so it's MFK Fisher's half and half cocktail, um, which is very much if you happen to find yourself in a tight spot with not much to drink, you might go for. I'm not sure that I would go for it in other circumstances apart from this <laughs> evening. Um, so it's half dry vermouth, half uh, dry sherry. And then to make it even more bitter, you add some <laughs> quite a lot of lemon juice and then some uh, bitters to just top it off. So just yeah, no sugar in it at all. That sounds vile. No, 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 no sugar oh. in it. I don't know what that says about Mary Frances. It's, it does sound horrid. Is it horrid? It's not horrid. Bit, bit medicinal. <laughs> but yeah, it feels like it's, it, I don't know if it's doing me any good, but it, I don't think it's something you drink for pleasure. You drink to forget. <laughs> it's still looking quite full, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think it's going to go down that, that, that quickly. I've got more. It makes a lot, her <laughs> recipe. 
that looked like it was an actual beaker as well. It is, yeah. Which would be appropriate. It's got a slightly sample-esque look to it, actually. <laughs> Good equipment. This is this is mouth-watering stuff. It is. Right? It is. Right. Uh, oh, should we? Okay. Should we crack on? Well, I think we're 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 convened. Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in 1942, somewhere in California. Wartime privations are beginning to bite. We're hungry but undaunted. We've made a fruitcake with a can of tomato soup and used the empty can to help boost the feeble rays from the coal fire. There's a tray of baked apples bubbling in the oven and we've a half and half on the go with some salty crackers to nibble on. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today are two first-time guests, the writers Dan Richards and Felicity Cloak. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Hi. Dan's first book, Holloway, was co-authored with Robert McFarlane, illustrated by Stanley Donwood, self-published in 2012 and picked up by Faber and Faber in 2013 and became a Sunday Times bestseller. His fourth book, Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth, was published by Canongate in April 2019. Max Porter, uh, a backlisted regular, it says here. He's also an author. He's not just a backlisted regular, John. He's also has achieved other he's a, things. He's, he's a fine, fine author, as we know. Has called Dan a wonderful storyteller, wise, wry and open-hearted, the perfect travelling companion. Dan has written about travel literature, art and music for publications, including The Economist, Guardian, Telegraph, Monocle, Slightly Foxed and The Quietus. He claims to love both oysters and MFK Fisher. Well, we'll see whether that stands up to <laughs> yeah. close scrutiny today. Our other guest today is Felicity Cloak. She's a food writer and the award-winning author of The Guardian's long-running How to Make the Perfect series and the New Statesman's Food Column, as well as five cookbooks, including the Andre Simon Award shortlisted The A to Z of Eating and a culinary travel log, One More Croissant for the Road, which was recently shortlisted for a Fortnum and Mason Award. Do you do you win something from Fortnum and Mason? <laughs> if you win the award, you win something. If you're only shortlisted, you get a little sticker on your book, which is nice. Um, but I did win something a few years ago, and they sent me an enormous hamper and a very strange award, which I don't know. I left in a pub, actually, that evening. I did it subsequently get it back. I've just put in an order for two jars of Fortnum's horseradish, you know. It's the only yeah. one I trust. <laughs> the only one I trust. The only brand I trust. You don't make your own, Andy. I'm I, disappointed. Do you know what? I don't make my own horseradish, <laughs> no. That's why I thought I should be taking a back seat later <laughs> in the episode. I'm, I'm not sure MFK would approve. Felicity has been obsessed with MFK Fisher. She claims to be obsessed. She claims to have been obsessed with MFK Fisher for at least a decade and wrote the foreword to the 2019 Daunt Books reissue of Consider the Oyster, though in truth she hasn't eaten many oysters since consuming one the size of her hand in Brittany. Was that a pleasurable experience? No. It wasn't. Was it, it was. Was it horrid? It was. I don't think that you should have to take a sharp knife to an oyster. I think in general your <laughs> teeth. I'm not someone that just swallows them, but I feel like your teeth should be um, weapon enough for an oyster. <laughs> but in this case, the oyster man had to lend me his special knife to cut it up, and he told me it was 15 years old, and I just really went off because they're alive. Of course, when you when you eat them, they're, they're still alive. The whole thing was extremely off-putting. It just puts me in mind of Alien. 
Yeah. Am I yeah. the only one who went there? Sort of like, you know, John Hurt's, you know, <laughs> glorious love of interstellar oysters. And then you just go somewhere with your friends and you're just there and it's a quiet little place. And you think, oh, I just, oh, I've got a big one over. Whack! Have you ever seen West African snails? Uh, the land snails, yeah. Yeah, which uh, when cooked are, I mean, again, really much larger than the snails you would imagine you'd get. Uh, knife and fork job. Uh, and so, so anyway... <laughs> the book... That Dan and Felicity are yeah. here to discuss, guess, guess by whom, is MFK Fisher's How to Cook a Wolf, her classic guide to surviving the privations of war, first published in the United States by Jewel, Sloan and Pierce in 1942 and first published in the UK as part of a collection called The Art of Eating by Faber and Faber in 1963 and released earlier this year in a handsome new paperback edition by Daunt Books. Can I just say two things about that, yeah. John? It's actually unclear if it's included in, in The Art of Eating or not. Really? Because it says on the copyright page... It does. ...that it was, but elsewhere it says it, it, it had to be left out of the British edition of uh, uh, The Art of Eating. So if anyone listening to this has a copy of The Art of Eating, published by Faber and Faber in 1963, and can have a quick look and tell us whether it contains How to Cook a Wolf, that would be great. Uh, I just want to say a quick word before I ask you what you've been reading this week. Just to say the original plan with this episode is is we've been talking about the, doing this episode on MFK Fisher for a year. And the idea was we were going to do one of her books, Consider the Oyster. And it was going to be great because um, Dan and Felicity were going to come to Whitstable along with Nikki and John. And I was going to walk literally five minutes down the road rather than coming all the way to London. And we were going to sit in Wheeler's Oyster Bar in Whitstable. And they'd agreed to let us do this. We were going to use their back room uh, to record the podcast. And then we were either going to have lunch after uh, we recorded the podcast or before we recorded the podcast. Then we're going to be oysters, perfectly normal sized oysters available to us. But then obviously uh, 2020 uh, got in the way of us doing that. However, Daunt Books have just republished How to Cook a Wolf. And the reason they've republished it is the same reason that we wanted to feature it on the podcast, which is uh, it's a book about how to make the best of a difficult situation uh, in culinary terms, whether there's a war on or a plague uh, as it turns out. So so that's why we've decided to do how, how to Cook a Wolf today. But we will be talking about all sorts of books by MFK Fisher. That said, John, what have you been reading this week? I have been reading um, a wonderful novel, 2001, by Bernadine Evaristo called The Emperor's Babe. Um, like a lot of people, I read her Girl, Woman, Other last year and loved it and thought I... There, I, I was aware of co-winner of the Booker Prize, co-winner of the Booker Prize, but I was aware of the Empress Babe when it came out. I thought, what a brilliant idea—a a novel set in Roman London, with a feisty black girl character, uh, written in verse. So I, th I remember thinking that sounds great. It, had, it got terrific reviews, but I never read it. So I settled down um, uh, uh, last week and read it, and it—it is—it's uh, as good as I hoped it would be. It's—it's uh, it's a quick read. It's um, it's like a kind of, it's like a verse Roman version of Sex and the City. It's a bit of a rom com. <laughs> uh, Zuleika, who's the who's the main character, is is uh, we meet her as a sort of, I guess she's probably uh, fourteen, fifteen in the in the book. She's a bit of an urchin, um, kind of with her friend Alba and her uh, her kind of trans 
transvestite man- mentor Venus, they uh, they are kicking up all kinds of um, uh, fun and and mischief in Roman London, and then she gets her dad is a bit of a nouveau riche trader. They've come out of uh, Nubia, what is now Sudan, into the Roman Empire, into Londinium, into this incredible melting pot of a city. And one of the best things about the book is the uh, the sense of Roman Roman London. It's full of kind of different races, different languages. There's a lot of Latin in the book, sort of slangy Latin. What regards does she have for historical verisimilitude, or is not is that not the point? No, absolutely. No, this is what I love about the book. She was writer in residence at the time at the London uh, at the London Museum, so the book is for, absolutely based on first hand research into into the presence of of, of Africans in in, in London. In uh, or Londinium in that in that period, so it's it somehow manages to be really interesting historical novel, but as uh, the verse, the f- kind of flowing free verse way she tells the story means that it clips along and it's funny. It's very very funny. It it, it gets darker and sadder towards the end. I won't give anything away. Uh, Zuleika is a great character. And uh, she, what happens is she gets married off to a rather boring businessman by her by her dad. Then meets the emperor and falls head over heels with the emperor, who is basically kind of bit down on his wife and very much down on the latest concubine. They have a a, a, a fantastic affair and dot dot dot. I'm not going to tell you the, the the way the story writes. It's brilliantly written. It's it's both contemporary and, as I say. You know how a lot of historical fiction really creaks and groans under historical research? Somehow in this book, Bernardino Veristo has managed to fill you full of the... I'm going to read a very small bit in the moment, give you a flavour of it. Fills you full of the sort of sense of the city and the particular sense of the city and the and the different languages and the and the and the food and the smells and the but it's because of the form that she's chosen, it's it works as a sort of as a narrative. Some of the lyric poetry, there are bits of serious lyric poetry where, of course, Zuleika becomes a poet. She's got she's given a Greek tutor and she learns she's bored rigid by the Iliad and pretty much bored by the Aeneid. So she starts to write her own funky kind of rhyming lyrical poetry. You're interested in the history of London. Uh, it's it's I would say a, a, a very 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 good summer read, but also has has kind of rigor and depths and some beautiful beautiful writing in it. Read us a bit. I thought this would work because this is the first date between Septimus Severus, the emperor, and Zuleika, and they're together for the first time, and they're having a la John Jones a sexy supper together. Oh, sweet death, we were together finally. And it's obviously this is Zuleika talking in my triclinium, a lyre player in the background as we reclined on sofas, the low marble table laid out with a little spread served in my floral red Samian crockery, small songbirds soaked in asparagus sauce with quail's eggs, dormice cooked in honey and poppy seed, salted fish with oyster dressing, my lord, milk-fed snails just for you, fried jellyfish, bear cutlets, sliced flamingo tongue marinated in turmeric and clove oil, and filling my hunger, par-cooked courgettes, boiled whole sautéed peacock brains melt in my mouth, you look across, I'm stuffed. Dates torn between my teeth, sow's udders, lark's tongue in gall, garlic spiced with perfumed peacock feathers, and peppered rose petals, sweet wine cakes to follow. Olives with thyme is on our side, all drowned down with finest African wine. We were silent, letting oils drip over our lips and chins, watching each other lick it up with acrobatic tongues. 
He was solid, like a gladiator, my Libyan, my lover to be, my libidinous warrior, my belcher. His black eyes following the slope on my shoulders, my shimmering cerise gown, decollete, fastened with sapphire class, set in gold, flattering my shining bazookas that rise and fall with each excited breath. He was in Britannia, waging war, he said, would leave that when the whole of Caledonia had been taken from Hadrian's Wall to the Antonine Wall and way up to the North Sea. His marriage was impossible, he said. His wife had gone from swan to donkey. He knew Felix well, had often dined with him at his villa in Rome. News to me. He called me to him, nibbled my neck, his harsh bristles scratching my delicate skin, stuck his tongue down my ear, making me squeal, growled. Are you ready for war? <laughs> Good Lord. I mean, I just thought, MFK Fisher, come on, let's have a bit of fun. It's a Friday afternoon. Anyway, uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's a proper romp and I loved it. Andy, what have you been reading? Loyal listeners to Backlisted will recall that we came back after our failed sabbatical with an episode <laughs> on uh, Excellent Women by Barbara Pym, and we were joined by Becky and Nora from Curtis Brown Heritage. And we asked them to pitch books to us, which I confess that I had read over, the, over our break. And we featured a couple of them on the podcast, but there were a couple more they pitched, which were great, which don't deserve to vanish. So I'm going to talk about one this time and, and the other the, on the next podcast. The first one is called Figures in a Landscape by Barry England. And here is our former guest, Becky Brown, with the pitch that we asked her to make for that novel. Okay, so Figures in a Landscape by Barry England, shortlisted for the first ever Booker Prize, utterly deserved it. It's, in some ways, your kind of archetypal man-on-the-run, like, escape thriller. Think Rogue Mail. Um, just think Rogue Mail, because that's the only other good one, in my opinion. And, <laughs> sorry, John Buchan. And imagine that Kafka wrote it, and then you have something approaching bigger than a landscape. It is about two men over eight days fleeing a helicopter and a whole army, and you just watch them slowly die. <laughs> she's so good you know i i listened back to that and i thought i can't really improve on that i can merely augment it uh, um dan have you read figures in a landscape i have not but i have seen the film which has yes. malcolm mcdowell in it it did it was directed by joseph losey and it starred robert shaw and malcolm mcdowell it's quite a strange film um what Becky says there about the uh, uh, the Kafka meets household, you wouldn't think that's a combination that you would <laughs> that, you, that would work, but it's true. It's a, a really it's a bit like Steven Spielberg's film Duel, where you put somebody in a hostile landscape, you don't know anything about them, and then you pursue them. Now, no spoilers about anything. Jewel and figures in a landscape have different outcomes and the existential element of figures in a landscape a thriller which drives its protagonists to the point of disintegration almost literally initially when i was reading it i was thinking i, I don't understand why this would have been booker worthy and by the time i finished it i thought oh yes a, 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 of course it manages to do a very very rare thing of 
matching uh, ideas with a really um, propulsively forward-moving plot. I'm just going to read you the beginning of the book. This is the first paragraph of the book and actually gives you a, a feel for what it's like for the next 200 pages. With their hands tied as usual behind their backs... They had just been paraded through the streets of a small village for the edification of the local population. While they were being formed up for the march to that night's camp, McConaughey had suddenly come close and whispered harshly, If I go left, will you come? Ansel, remembering a hundred humiliations at McConaughey's hands, had stared at him in astonishment. What? Will you come? Yes. When I move, follow. And that was the extent of their planning. They had been beaten for talking. Stumbling along in the fierce heat, Ansel struggled to make his brain think clearly. What have I committed myself to? What have I done? His bound arms ached at his back, his anguish of mind feeding on his torment of body. Through glazed eyes, he saw McConaughey look back towards him and his stomach contracted with fear at the thought of what lay ahead. Not an hour before, he had committed himself to a man he feared because that man despised him. So it's the opposite wow. of a buddy movie. Yeah, yeah. It's, the, it's, it's these two guys who don't like one another, but McConaughey has recognised that Ansel has something he needs and what he has is a brain. So it's like a split between the will in man. It's the body versus the brain to see which can allow them to survive longer. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Becky was absolutely right. And it's just as well we waited four months to talk about it because it's republished by Vintage this week. It's been out of print for 20 years. Barry England, shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 1969, had a second novel published by Cape in 1997 called No Man's Land, was a filmmaker and a playwright, only published two novels, is no longer with us. Um, You know, one of those books that feels like a contemporary classic had it not been unavailable for a significant proportion of its life. Time now for an advert. So the book we're here to talk about today is MFK Fisher's How to Cook a Wolf. Felicity, when did you first read or hear of or encounter the work of MFK Fisher? Strangely enough, I remember it really clearly. I was... um was quite new to food writing and I went to an event by um, the already well-established food writer Diana Henry um, of whom I was and still am a massive fan and I was sitting at the back and she was talking as she's being interviewed by someone and she was talking about how she'd long had a taste for American food writing because in America it's not seen and it is not is never been seen as vulgar to talk about yourself and food. You know, there's still that slightly repressed Elizabeth David sense that you can talk about mm-hmm. food in an aesthetic sense, 
but you can't talk about your emotional relationship to food or how it fits into your own life and you know, something that's reached its zenith with blogging and, you know, a 5,000 word essay on why this reminds you of the death of your mother. But anyway, and so Diana said she's had no, she's had no truck with this idea that you can't talk personally about food. And she talked about how much she loved MFK Fisher and how, you know, she, she did it best. And so, of course, I wrote down in a notebook at the time, I think it's probably before iPhones, I wrote down an MFK Fisher's uh, name and I went and ordered, I couldn't find her in any bookshops, so I went and ordered books online. And actually, I think that my editions are all American editions, they're that sort of larger mm. format. And I devoured her and it felt like such a... It felt like such a treat. It felt like diving into, you know, that first drink of a holiday or something, that excitement. You've got more to read. She's just so human and everything is imbued for me with glamour. Even the slightly sort of scuzzy bits of her work are listening thrilling about them. I just absolutely, I fell in love with her from the first page of An Alphabet for Gourmets and I, I'm always recommending her to people. I absolutely love her. Dan, similar question to you. When did you first read How to Cook a Wolf? How to Cook a Wolf, I read very recently for you. <laughs> and but thank you. Thank you so much. I've, in a very backlisted answer, I have had the book for years. <laughs> did you think you'd read it? Were you under the impression that you had, in fact, read it? No, I can tell you why as well, because the edition I had, the uh, the Daunt edition is very, very lovely. The edition I had, had MFK's picture on the front, and it may even have been this very picture that's in the back of the Daunt book. Uh, quite a glamorous picture, but quite Gimler-eyed. And perhaps that's mm. what put me off, because um, the Daunt editions are great, you know, and the consider the oyster has an oyster on the front, so you kind of know what you're dealing with there. Um but the MFK Fisher was rather like a family portrait cover that hangs over a dining room when no fun or speech has ever been had. Oh, there uh, she is. Yeah, 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 she's yeah. holding it up there. So, so this yeah. isn't the one, but the American editions I've got, which are North Point Press, all have um, all have portraits of MFK Fisher. Um, Bloody terrifying. She's always reputed to be an extremely attractive woman. Yeah, so I think they've yeah. chosen a rather... Um, nasty picture uncharacteristic photo <laughs> it's very odd it's a very odd way of publishing food books by the way i think That's, isn't it having a picture really of, the, of the author so you you had the book and you and and you read it a couple of weeks ago for us and thank but, you but yeah. when did you when did you encounter her writing for the first so time i started and i would encourage people to start this way with consider the oyster and i'm gonna say i read that book mainly for the foreword by Felicity Cloak. Oh. And, uh, yeah, uh, and it's Consider the Oyster is fantastic. It and is. it leads you immediately on to The Gastronomical Me, her memoir. And then from there, you can read anything you want. But it actually sets you up incredibly well to then come, I have discovered in the last two weeks, to How to Cook a Wolf. Yeah. Because in a way, Agree. it primes yeah. you for what to look out for. Because yes. How to Cook... A wolf, as we will talk about, is a is a queer beast. Uh, yes, I, I totally agree. <laughs> I think she's she's a brilliant example of one of those writers who, when you've read all of her books, you've read one of them, uh, because she she finds it hard to 
create one essential text. And the more you read of her, the more her personality infuses the other things that you then go on to read. John, had you heard, you're a foodie. Yeah. Had you read her before? Had you heard of her? Yeah, I'd, I'd only read, I'd read bits and pieces. I'd never read, um, I'd never read Consider the Oyster, although it had always been a book that I want because it's a great title and I like oysters. I was aware that, uh, that it had been re- reissued with an introduction by Felicity, but um, I hadn't heard of How to Cook a Wolf um, at all. I just hadn't crossed my, and it's, a, again, it's one of those great titles. I have to say she's, she's good on titles and she's good on chapter titles. Um, but I, like Felicity, I was in, I was really interested in her, what I had read because, because I, 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 I mean, much as I admire the English food writing tradition of which Elizabeth David is the sort of the, 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 you know, the sort of the grand dam, it is quite academic. It is, there is a lot of research in it. And of course I I love that too. Uh, Even with Jane Grigson, what you don't get is what you get in, you remember when we talked about Pomian, what you Mm -hmm. don't get is that oh my God, this is delicious. This is, you know, it, it, that sort of, that pleasure, that ability to write about food as pleasure and, and of, 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 of constructing a meal um, and relaxing in an armchair and, and drinking wine. The, the, the Chablis in Pomian is always winking at the brim. And suddenly I thought, Mike, here's a writer that's writing from a completely different tradition that's doing exactly that. So I'd always got, I've always had that thing, I must read more. And now I have. <laughs> and really, I, I think, mean, I've, um, I've been like a hog in chip for the last sort of uh, two weeks. <laughs> I really have. I mean, it's like, this is, this, is, this is my comfort. This is my comfort lockdown reading of choice. Well, uh, our producer, Nikki Birch, always keen to ask, the, to cut to the heart of the matter, um, was concerned that some listeners may not have heard of MFK Fisher, which I think is a perfectly reasonable um, uh, concern. Um, but I thought I'd just share with you... Uh, a diary entry by Alan Bennett from uh, 2001. He was in. He was on holiday in France, <laughs> and uh, on the 28th of August 2001, this is what he wrote. I won't do the voice. <laughs> Pick out from this holiday bookcase, as they were, a book of travel pieces by M. F. K. Fisher, and read about looking alone at a place an account of a winter visit to Arles in 1971. I am shamed by its exactitude of expression, and though the language is simple, her ability to hit on a phrase. She's like Richard Cobb in finding out the ordinary rhythms of a place, its habits and the flavour of the small lives lived there, waiters and the shoes of the waiters, hotel receptionists, attendance in museum born 1908 and now presumably dead i have never heard of her (laughs) (laughs) so that was alan bennett and that was alan bennett who not only had not heard of her she was still alive in fact when he wrote that makes me feel a bit better thanks alan (laughs) okay good (laughs) so thanks alan yeah so felicity is how to cook a wolf a cookbook (laughs) Of Fisher's works, I would say that it's the most practically useful. It's actually the first, despite having, you know, big myself up as an MFK Fisher obsessive in the introduction I provided you with, I've realised that this is actually the first, the tomato um, soup cake, which I, I baked for this podcast. 
um, from the book is actually the first recipe that I've ever made of Emma Fitzgerald's ah. fishes. <laughs> okay. But I did think of making some oyster recipes when I wrote it forward to consider the oyster, but I just never got, you know, they're so lovely to read, but I just never felt the need to to make any of them. But How to Cook a Wolf is actually, I think it has some sound practical advice in it. Um, and there's some other things that I might consider making. Although I always think there's a great quote from the TLS's review of her first book, um, I think mm-hmm. Serve It Forth, and I can't remember what it is exactly, but it basically says one one suspects that um, that Miss Fisher's expertise and uh, knowledge is not quite as wide as she would have us believe. Yes, I've got it here. Felicity, I've got it here. Mrs. This is how it starts. Mrs. Fisher has written not a cookery book. She only gives two recipes and those merely incidentally. <laughs> but a book in praise of a good food and judicious eating. That's, I mean, that's, Dan, that seems quite, that's 1937 in the TLS, but that seems fair, doesn't it? This is why I love her, because she isn't really a cookery writer. This is my theory. She is an explorer. Essentially, she's lived a fantastic life. She is a travel writer, and she sort of, In some way, the I suppose if you are going to put in the punctuation of her life, the punctuation is the food. The food is what holds everything down because otherwise it would float away. She is an experiential writer in that way that Alan Bennett talked about. She talks about place. She talks about people. She talks about experience. And it's about the food, but not necessarily in that order. (laughs) Dan, Dan, you um, you went on a pilgrimage, didn't you? Yeah, I went to see, I mean, this is where we get into trouble because all of these places have names and the place I went was in Switzerland, French Switzerland. So I went to somewhere which translates as the grazing ground. So that's um, La Paquie, I think, which is in a place called Sherb, which is just above, or Sherbs, don't know, not sure, uh, just <laughs> above Lake Geneva. Um, and I went and I tracked down where she lived uh, from 1936 to 39. Um She's a huge hero to me in terms of her travels, the way she travels, the way she talks about life and the food. I've never cooked anything that (laughs) she has uh, set down in her books, but I have experienced food differently as a result of the things that she has written about. And I would say that my life as a sensualist is massively enhanced by her writing and the fact I discovered she existed. I love oysters now, you know, to an oomph degree more than I did before because of MFK Fisher, Queen of Oysters. It's impossible, I think, to imagine that you could write a better book than Consider the Oyster about oysters. She covers everything. She covers, you know, getting sick from oysters brilliantly and wittily. She looks at the oyster's sex life. It's very bizarre sex life. She looks at everything. It's the sort of book I'd give to a QI researcher and said, if you really want to get underneath her, a, a, a subject read mfk fisher on the oyster ballistic as i say i worship at the richly comparisoned altar of mfk fisher i don't think to the oyster is great but i don't think it's her best work and i think it's because like how to cook a wolf i believe that it was she had to write it relatively quickly because she needed the money and i think it's a, a excellent example of what a great working writer that she she was 
that she put that out and it's such mm-hmm. an engaging book but I've sort of got that sense of yeah, yeah, yeah. however well it's written that she is struggling <laughs> to pad things out and there are some <laughs> things where I look at it and she's sort of she's 32 and she's talking about eating oysters on a junk in Singapore Harbour or something. And I'm thinking, did you bollocks? I've read your autobiography. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Didn't complete happen. respect. That, sh- that, sh- that shouldn't matter. But it's sort of, it for me, I think she's better when she's just, as Dan said, she is writing about the people that she's met, um, the places that she's been, the restaurants that she's experienced, the central pleasure of that rather than attempting to write a sort of comprehensive guide to an oyster. We should say one of the things about MFK Fisher, which is such an interesting mixture of, to use the, the word Dan used there, the word sensualist, she's a sensualist, but she's also, an, in the best term, she's a hack and the daughter mm. of a hack. Yeah, yeah. Right? So the idea is you produce the work. You don't rewrite. She, no. she, she famously claimed that she yeah. never rewrote. You got it down and then you moved on to the next thing. Dan. I love the idea that Felicity, your as it as it's in this book, your introduction to consider the oyster is five pages long. I've just come up with a theory: you took longer for your five-page introduction than she took for the monograph. <laughs> yeah, that will be true. That, that is yeah. totally true. Yeah. So let me just read. I'm going to read the blurb on um, the new edition of uh, How to Cook a Wolf to just introduce the book that. Uh, has given us the pretext for this episode. Written in 1942 to inspire courage in those daunted by wartime shortages, How to Cook a Wolf has continued to rally readers and cooks during times of both scarcity and plenty. With her trademark wit and warm wisdom, Fisher shares her timeless tips for keeping up spirits and appetites when ingredients are in short supply. Instead of regretting what we don't have, she teaches us how to savour what we do. Fisher also offers dozens of recipe ideas, from making soups and simple omelettes to baking bread and sprucing up tinned food. Knowing that the last thing hungry people need are hints on cutting back and making do. Fisher gives us licence to dream, experiment and invent adventurous and delicious meals from whatever we can salvage from the back of the cupboard. How to Cook a Wolf shows us how to feed our hungers and nourish our souls, even when fear is in our hearts and the wolf is at the door. So that is Howlin' Wolf, Wolf at Your Door. And I just want to talk about that blurb. It's a good blurb. Well done. Very good blurb. And and talking about things found in store cupboards. So you've mixed uh, 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 whatever that lovely cocktail is called half and half you've also prepared haven't you a a, a cake <laughs> uh, from a recipe in how to cook a wolf what what have you cooked i have cooked the tomato soup cake from the book simply <laughs> because i could not as soon as i read it i looked at the margin note there's a little pencil note saying now this i have to try and i did a little bit of research on twitter who uh, which informed me that it would have been condensed tomato soup so i needed to go and buy some of that which is actually surprisingly hard to track down and then I made it earlier in the week and it's actually still going going strong today and I've tested it on various people and most of them couldn't guess what was in it despite it oh. being it's got a great tan this cake it's very orange got a kind of tandoori look to it apparently you you don't taste tomato soup unless you know and then you really do taste it I have to say 
I'm, I'm just looking at what MFK Fisher wrote about it, and this, I think, for for, for those of you who want to get the feel <laughs> of what of of, of uh, why she's so perfect. So she gives the recipe, and then she says, "This is a pleasant cake, which keeps well and puzzles people who ask what kind it is." <laughs> the thing that put me in mind of you know i think you were talking recently about craig brown's one two three four about the beatles Uh there's that vignette where you know they go for dinner with their dentist and then they're given tea and then they're told oh no you can't drive home i've given you lsd by the dentist's wife in that same I can see that MFK Fisher would absolutely be a sort of like slipper in of LSD if she'd been sort of like born at a slightly different time and in 60s London. It would be, oh, it's LSD cake. I'm so sorry. They're LSD Jaffa cakes that I've made. And, and also, presumably, though, it, Felicity, as Dan was suggesting, the food is there as a way of talking about other things, though, right? You know, any, any listeners who are concerned that this is a, as a, a, a cookbook, you could use it as a cookbook, but it, but you wouldn't come to it primarily. No, 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 right? no. Um, and many of the recipes are interesting to read without you necessarily wanting to make it. But no, it's not primarily a cookbook. It just happens to be the book of hers that has the most recipes in it and the most practical advice. But even when she's writing about fuel efficiency, she, she manages to do it with interest. Yeah, I mean, there's life, life hacks in there as well. I, the one that I've been obsessed with is making p- stuffing pin cushions with dried coffee grounds. <laughs> yeah. Like, or there's a bit where she um, she's talking about, you know, washing up and getting and, and get, how do you stop your hands getting kind of uh, chapped? So she says, uh, basically, unwrap a quarter pound of butter, rub the paper on your hands before you throw it away. Or if you're making salad dressing, catch the last drop of oil from the bottle on your fingers. If you mix ground meat with tomato juice and egg crumbs of some kind of loaf, rub the film of fat onto your hands instead of washing it off at once. It will soon vanish and you will have smoother fingers and more firmly beautiful nails. <laughs> it's like you've got meat fat on your hands. It's brilliant. Dan, Dan, the wolf there, we heard the wolf at the door, right? The wolf howling at the door. Yeah. What is the wolf in How to Cook a Wolf? The wolf is all sorts of things. It's, mm. it's amazing. The wolf is the Second World War. The wolf is propriety. The wolf is um, kind of your self-respect. There's an amazing Mm. bit where she talks about the importance of having a mirror in your kitchen so that you can make yourself nice should you have unexpected callers. And, you know, it's that thing where she holds these entirely um, warring ideas in her head and in her book at the same time. And she manages to make it all work as this amazingly expedient strategy. The whole book is MFK Fisher against the world in a lot of ways. And her idea of what America is, what cooking is, what sensualism is, and what's for dinner at the same time. You know, there are great things about blackouts and, uh, you know, entertaining in a blackout. And she keeps saying, you know, (laughs) my friends in London do this, my friends in London do that. And you really get thinking, do they? Do they, low? Are you sure? 
What I love about both our guests, huge MFK Fisher fans, have never cooked any of her recipes <laughs> and constantly questioning the veracity of her <laughs> stories as well. And actually, when I went to Switzerland and when I went to her house, so I found her house where she was, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, where she had this amazing kind of menage a trois, what former guest Rowan Pelling would call a blended marriage. Um, <laughs> you know, and she was there on the sort of... Um, the steep shores above Lake Geneva, where they have all the vineyards. Um, and I was there and I found her former house where she'd done a lot of the stuff that ends up in the gastronomical me. And of course, it's all changed. Her garden's been grubbed up. Uh, there's a Porsche in the drive now. It's a gated kind of drive and all that. But I hiked up a little higher and I found this really old uh, vineyard, this really old guy who runs a vineyard, generation and generation and generation of people have run this vineyard. And we got quite drunk and he was explaining that the wine in that region, it gets three suns, of course. You get the sun itself, the sun off the lake, and the sun from the walls that the, the Romans built themselves. Yes, sir. All these walls were built by the Romans. <laughs> and then we got very drunk on red wine. And he said, of course, Mont Blanc, visible from here on a clear day. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember thinking, even in my slightly sort of, you know, my state, I was like, is it bollocks, mate? Is it? And it was perfect because, of course, all MFK Fisher's books are essentially, of course, on a clear day, you can see Mont Blanc from here. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I met can't. someone once on a dining train from Istanbul who could see Mont Blanc from here on a clear day. There's always that sort of layer of someone of my acquaintance. This book is full of sort of women with five children who are starving to death and feed them on five cents a year or something. She knows an inordinate amount of people with many, many children, which yes, I find, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing it reminded me of reading House of Cook a Wolf is it reminded me of, um, this is often quoted, it's a guy called Pete Meaden's definition of what mod was in the 1960s. If you wanted to know what mod was, he defined it, you know, Suits and The Who and Tamla Motown, he defined it as clean living under difficult circumstances, right? And MFK Fisher, what this book is about, maybe not clean living, but how do you approach life when constraints have been put on your life and we'll use food as a way into it but how do we how do we live stylishly near the end of the book in a chapter called how not to be an earthworm and john is absolutely right she is the queen of the chapter title i mean she i, I it's almost like spoilers if i were to read them out like how not to boil an egg seems to me, especially for 1942, that's a pretty good title. How to make a pigeon cry. <laughs> how to be cheerful though starving, you know, etc. You know, it's all. She writes this near the end of the book. And remember, this is written in 1941 or two. If you are not in a state of active emergency, but merely living as so many people have lived for many months now, taking sirens in your stride, and ration cards with a small, cautious grin. You will be able to make very good meals indeed for the people who live with you. As long as the gas or the electric current supply you, your stove will function and your kitchen will be warm and savoury. Use as many fresh things as you can always, and then trust to luck and your blackout cupboard and what you have decided inside yourself about the dignity of man. That's it, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, how, that's, how we, that's where we are in July 2020. I'd say 
there's a brilliant I mean you talk about this the expediency of stuff in war you know making best but there's something of Sergeant Walker about her isn't there there's something of the Spiv in the same way <laughs> you know she's uh, there's a wonderful chapter towards the end of the book where she talks about the importance of the dream and here are some recipes that you won't be able to make but they will pull you through and she says I mean this the book is peppered with these purple passages, but it's also peppered with these lines that really hit you, hit you in your heart. And she says at one point, so many wonderful cookbooks have been written, at least in part, in the concentration camp or at least in a prison cell. And that really got to me because so much of the book is jolly. It's jolly in the, in the so many you know ways that word can be used. Um, can I read a bit from the, about gazpacho? Because I feel that you get like the full symphony, the Fisher symphony. You're getting every level of her at some level. Let's hear it. Um, so this is in a chapter, chapter titles, How to Boil Water. <laughs> <laughs> and I should say before I start that also this, um, the Daunt reissue, it has two Fishers. It has the yeah, Fisher who wrote really it important. the first time around. And then it has the Fisher... Um, 10, 15 years later in the 50s, who talks slightly obliquely about this new Cold War, you know, at least in the old days we knew what a war was and all of that. So here we go. There is another kind of soup, certainly not bland, but with a freakish appeal to it, brackets. I don't know why I said freakish. This soup, which is more widely served each summer in America, is as respectable as any Yankee chowder, which should be served as icy cold as vichyssoise, and might well act as an alternative to those weary, brittle souls who live through the summer months in any city, thanks mainly to what their grandparents probably called cold potato cream. It is simple to make and inexpensive, and unlike vichyssoise, is fairly elastic, depending in the main on how fortunate you are in growing or buying herbs. This recipe stems partly from Paul Rebu and partly from a Spanish chef on an Italian freighter, which once ran between Marseille and Portland, Oregon. Felicity's face, it's brilliant. And it's just that thing. And then she gives you, can I read a recipe? Because I think you get a sense of her in the yeah, recipe Yeah, let's as hear well. a recipe, go on. Say, so this is gazpacho. Brackets, immediately brackets. So this is a second thought. Within the past few years, I have found myself involved in a discussion, esoteric as well as practical, about the correct way to make a gazpacho. I still stay loyal to this recipe, while accentuating the fact that it, like rules for all good native soups, can vary with each man who makes it. One generous mix handful of chives, chervil, parsley, basil, marjoram, dot, 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 any or all but fresh. <laughs> one clove of garlic. One sweet pepper, um, pimiento or bell. Two peeled and seeded tomatoes, one small glass olive oil, or really flavorful nut oil, or substitute. There are lots of those, <laughs> or substitute. <laughs> Bacon grease, yeah. Juice of one lemon, one mild onion. And Felicity might be able to fill me in. How do you know when an onion's <laughs> mild? I was reading this whole book thinking there is so much tomato juice. And how do you know when an onion is mild? What if I get a sort of rotter? Um, one cup diced cucumber, salt and pepper, half cup breadcrumbs, chop the herbs and mash thoroughly with the garlic, pimiento and tomatoes, adding the oil very slowly and the lemon juice. Add about three glasses of cold water, 
brackets. I still say this is the correct liquid, but often I use good meat or fish stock, close brackets, or as much as you wish. <laughs> so uh, put in the onion and the cucumber, season, sprinkle with breadcrumbs, ice for at least four hours before serving. And then she goes on to say, I love to serve this at drinks parties because people don't really drink it very much, but it leaves them vaguely sober for good conversation. <laughs> and then it keeps well so I can eat it with my family later, which is just, you know, what with the freighter and then the hangovers. That's classic. I want to ask Felicity, the thing that while you were reading that, I want to ask Felicity, do you envy Fisher? her freedom from precision <laughs> and truth. <laughs> because we're basically saying she she like she's she she spins a yarn and she's approximate, right? In all sorts of ways. Is that a thing that you would like to do more in your writing? Yeah, it is it is frustrating because when when you cook a lot as I do and I assume she did although some of the recipes do make me wonder um <laughs> you know you don't you know that uh, this doesn't matter and this does and you know you put more or less according to to what result you want or what ingredients you have or whatever and so that's nice it's actually very annoying to have to say exactly you know people say oh is this a fan oven or a conventional oven is that a tablespoon or this it's just, it doesn't matter stop fussing however um with that recipe, as with so many others, I do think that sometimes she's just... I mean, she put the book together in a month. I do wonder um, whether she also found herself freed from the convention of trying out the recipes, which is perhaps less desirable. I don't know if anyone else noticed, and this is really a pernickety thing, anyone else noticed that she recommends boiling spaghetti for 20 minutes? Yeah, I did notice that, um, Which puzzled me, because I'm sure that she must have eaten spaghetti. <laughs> yeah, and also Felicity... What about this? The, the 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 2020 publishers have got a note at the front of the book, haven't they? What about what Borat? Say, what do they say in there? Well, notes? she's got this strange chapter. So what we were talking about earlier that she's perhaps not quite so expert in everything as she likes to make out. So there's a chapter not only on canine nutrition, um, which, which seems to me she starts talking about how dogs only eat meat and cats don't, which seems to me entirely the wrong way around. But again, that's nickety. She also has a chapter on making your own soaps, and you know says that she knows certain nice nice ladies in London who are maybe not glamorous, but very clean, who have been saving their bacon grease, I believe, to make soap, uh -huh. which is chilling, <laughs> gives a recipe for soap, homemade soap using borax, which the publishers have appended a note suggesting you don't try because it's potentially fatal. Um, but some of the some of the other recipes I, I would also recommend you probably don't try. Just enjoy them. Enjoy the prose for what it is. So we're, we're now building on this by saying the recipes are not merely unreliable, but actively dangerous. <laughs> Yeah. I wanted to ask, oh, uh, can you see yourself referring? I mean, have you done a how to, how to make the perfect gazpacho? You must have done yes, at some point. Yes, I right? have. But can you see in any of these recipes, can you see yourself quoting as you do? That's what I love about your thing. You quote lots of different people's versions and then you come up with the sort of the best of the best. Can you see any of the recipes in this book finding their way into? I would love to. If I found a recipe that, that worked, I would love to. But then I'd be worried that it didn't work and then I'd have to bad mouth. MFK Fisher, who, as I said, I, I, don't, love, want to do. I don't want to do that. Um, so I suppose I would just, you know, put it down to her her freedom as an artist rather than a cook. <laughs> yes. We all dip into that pot, yes. <laughs> Dan. 
I love that in a similar thing. So, you know, when we're talking about dangerous things in the book, page 230, ladies and gentlemen, a vodka. Yes. Where yeah. she, you know, there <laughs> oh, was, yes. and also, you know, and I know Felicity, you want to possibly hold Dawn's up about this as well. There was no kind of warning in the front about she will suggest that you should buy some alcohol from your local chemist and then make a vodka. Shall I read the vodka? Just, thing or... just read, just read the ingredients. That's, that's all everybody that's all needs. needs. On this. Here we go. This tells tells a story. One quart water, one teaspoon glycerin or sugar, one lemon rind. <laughs> shaved. So far, so good. <laughs> half orange rind, shaved. One quart alcohol. That's it. It's the most cavalier. And she goes on and she says, to make a very acceptable liqueur, add more fruit shavings (laughs) (laughs) or a spoonful or so of honey. Yeah, it's not? lethal. No, no, no. There are three lines before. You're, I mean, I don't want to do her. Da- Simmer first, four ingredients, very gently, about 20 minutes, or spaghetti, as it's known. Remove from stove, add alcohol, and cover instantly with a tight lid, let cool and strain. And, I mean, I feel the only help she's given her audience there is strain, so they don't choke on some peel. Mm. You know, but they will die as if they drunk Araqua. <laughs> I, I guarantee. Or go blind, but, I think. Or go Felic- blind. But Felicity, do you? I mean, we're having fun with that, but the central point remains, which is the book is speaking to people in wartime, and presumably is speaking to people here in 2020 about not, it seems to me, giving in really to the spirit of the times, not giving in to. I don't want to call it austerity because that word has changed its um, connotations in the last 10 years. But but you know what I mean. It's about an attitude to the time we're living in. Yeah, there's, I think that she uses the phrase a couple of times in the book of sort of facing um, hard times of grace and gusto. And that seems to be the theme. I would say that the wolf is... Um, for me, mostly represents sort of having a, an agency, a choice about what you do. And actually, if you're at rock bottom, which I think she does acknowledge, you know, in the book several times, she says, you may not, you may not actually have the money to, to buy your, your alcohol at the chemist or whatever. And therefore, you may be beyond, beyond my help. But, you know, there's a certain Marie Antoinette-ish quality to some of it, to me. There's, you know, a lot of talk of maybe by making a steak tartare and some good, honest wine and you don't need any pudding. And I think if I've got enough money to buy, you know, steak and good, honest wine, I'm I'm probably okay to be honest with pudding. (laughs) But, yeah, I think it's very much a a state of mind for her. It's not, um, it's less a practical guide and more a sort of, um, a sort of pep talk. She is able to transform. I love this little bit about polenta, right, which is she just says, polenta is one of those ageless culinary lords like bread. It has sprung from the hunger of mankind and without apparent effort has always carried with it a feeling of strength and dignity and well-being. It costs little to prepare if there is little to spend or it can be extravagantly, opulently odorous with wines and such. It can be made doggedly with one ear cocked for the old wolf sniffing under the door, or it can be turned out as a well-nourished gesture to other simpler days. But no matter what conceits it may be decked with, its fundamental simplicity survives to comfort our souls as well as our bellies, 
the way a good solid fugue does or a warm morning in spring. Ah, it's good. It's beautiful. Mm. So here's a very short clip. I wanted to get... There are some clips out there of um, MFK Fisher talking. She led quite the life. Um, Here is a clip of her talking about why she chose her pen name. I was horrified to find that I was a lady, a woman, a woman. Because they thought I was um, the wispy young Don from Oxford or something, you know. And they said, well, women don't write the way. Women just don't write that way. And uh, so I said, well, what do we do? What do we do about it? I'm a, I'm a girl. Well, so they, they decided I'd be MFK Fisher from then on because nobody would know. So, Felicity, does her writing strike you as feminine, considering that she, that she says that they chose the name F, MFK Fisher because they, they thought if, they, if people knew she was a woman, it would put them off? And yet, to me, the writing seems very uh feminine in a wholly positive way yeah it seems it seems feminine that you could be under no illusion when you read it that this is a woman talking she's very aware of her her feminine charms there's a lot of talk of sort of seducing men she's very i think she's she's a very proud woman and she knows her attractiveness you know even in later life she got married quite quite late in life for the fourth time i think third or fourth time I do think that it's quite unusual to read a woman who's quite so sure of herself, particularly at this time. And it's not to say, you know, Elizabeth David was someone else who was extremely sure of themselves. But I love that, that she's very confident in her own opinions. And, you know, we only get her account of it. But the men in her life, you know, are very much minor, even, you know, um, Dilwyn, who was the love of her life, very much a minor character. MFK is the central central love of her own life I would say and I really like that about her I'm not sure whether I do know someone that knew her towards the end of her life and said that she was extremely charming but I don't know I don't feeling I don't know she and Elizabeth David deliberately didn't meet they had they had a little bit of a little bit of a beef I believe well I said that she'd uh, that she'd led a full life and you're going to read something from the gastronomical me which is her autobiography do you think you could just say a little bit about that book because that is, the, it seems to me that's probably the book, isn't it? The Gastronomical Me. Yeah, the Gastronomical Me was um, actually the second book of hers that I read, but I think it's definitely essential if if you would like to to know MFK Fisher as she saw herself, which is important for the rest of the rest of her work. Because as I said, she was the subject of her own own writing. She was the principal subject, and it's a series of essays that sort of takes you from know her birth in a slightly fantastical essay about her own birth which if you read her biography may contain small kernel of truth right up until I think the 1960s I think the focus for me is very much her years in Europe so with her first husband Al traveled to France and they lived in Lyon and various other places and then with her second husband they lived in Switzerland and it's just the discovery of this young Californian woman who'd grown up in, in kind of a small town um, in California, discovering Europe and the freedom of that and the food. And it is just wonderful because you, you share her excitement in finding about, out about going to the markets and the wine and the restaurants and things. And you're there with her and her learning to cook as a new wife. And it is just glorious. Well, could we hear a little bit, please? Yeah, so this is from an essay called Define This Word, which um, she labels 1936. And it 
details a visit she made to a restaurant on her own. There's a lot of, well, that's one of the themes of her writings, a lot of her eating on her own as a woman and that, a defiance to that. Um, and she finds herself in a restaurant set up in northern Burgundy uh, by a very famous Parisian chef. She finds herself the only diner with a very, very over-eager waitress um, who's almost sort of borders on the obsessive. Now, at this point, she's already eaten lots of hors d'oeuvres that she didn't order um, and is feeling a little bit trapped in this restaurant on her own. Said, when I had been served and had cut off her anxious breathings with an assurance that the fish was the best I had ever tasted, she peered again at me and at the sauce in the bowl. I obediently put some of it on the potatoes. No fool I to ruin treat or bleu with a hot concoction. There was more silence. Ah, she sighed at last. I knew Madame would feel thus. Is it not the most beautiful sauce in the world with the flesh of a trout? I nodded in credulous agreement. Would you like to know how it is done? I remembered all the legends of chefs who guarded favourite recipes of their very lives and murmured, yes. She wore the exalted look of a believer describing a miracle at Lord's as she told me, in a rush, how Monsieur Paul threw chopped chives into hot sweet butter and then poured the butter off, how he added another nut of butter and a tablespoonful of thick cream for each person, stirred the mixture for a few minutes over a slow fire and then rushed it to the table. So simple, I asked softly, watching her lighted eyes and the tender, lustful lines of her strange mouth. So simple, madame, but, she shrugged, you know, with a master. I was relieved to see her go. Such avid interest in my eating wore on me. I felt released when the door closed behind her, free from a minute or so from her victimisation. What would she have done, I wondered, if I had been ignorant or unconscious of any fine flavours? She was right there about Monsieur Paul. Only a master could live in this isolated mill and preserve his gastronomic dignity through loneliness and the sure financial loss of unused butter and addled eggs. Of course, there was the stream for his fish, and I knew his pâtés would grow even more edible with age. But how could he manage to have a thing like roasted lamb ready for any chance patron? Was the consuming interest of his one maid enough fuel for his flame? I tasted the last sweet nugget of trout, the one nearest the blue tail, and poked somnolently at the minute white billiard balls that had been eyes. Fate could harm, not harm me, I remembered whinily, for I had indeed dined today and dined well. <laughs> now for a leaf of crisp salad and I'd be on my way. But she's not on her way and it goes on for several more pages with this increasingly bizarre waitress stuffing her full of lovely rich food that she has not ordered. Whinily. Whinily. Well, now that's beautiful. a writer's word. That's beautiful, yeah, yeah. right? Well, listen, I'm going to go and buy some winkles in a styrofoam cup tomorrow, but eat them stylishly. So I have a, uh, As long as you've got some good, honest stick. wine, you'll be fine. That's what you need. <laughs> we got to wrap up. Have a half and half. Yeah. We've got to wrap up. Felicity, what, just what, as a, maybe an alternative out, what would you, if you were, if you were going to recommend where to start with MFK Fisher, where, which book would you press on people? I would go for an alphabet for gourmets, just because it's a selection of, um, you know, an A to Z of essays that she wrote for Gourmet Magazine. It's very accessible. It gives you a good sense of how she is as an author. You can dip in. Some people do find her too much. They find her too rich. But I think that you will not, um, you won't regret it. Please read it, buy it. Dan, if you could recommend one MFK Fisher book to start with, which one would it be? It would be The Oyster just for its purity and the fact that you can enjoy it and it's fresh and it's new and it will inspire you to read the rest of it, I hope. My recommendation would be How to Cook a Wolf, then those two. But actually, the place to start is all three of those books, I think. And also, let's not leave out The Gastronomical Me, which is a superb book. 
Um, it's an amazing book. So listen, thanks very much, Dan, and thanks, Felicity, yep. um, for giving us this wonderful tour around a brilliant writer and also <laughs> dining in a stylish, lavish way on tomato soup and <laughs> yes indeed Felicity a delicious slice of tomato soup cake to celebrate it's my dinner our hunger is now sated uh, the wolf is banished from our door thank you Dan and Felicity for inspiring this varied menu to Nikki for baking four ingredients into a nourishing loaf and to Unbound for loading the dishwasher you can download all 115 previous episodes of Batlisted, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm. We're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter or via Facebook. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Batlisted. We'd prefer not to have intrusive paid-for adverts, but we want the quality of what we do to remain high, and that takes time. Your generosity is our sole source of income. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early, and for less than the price of six Colchester natives, lot listeners get two extra lot listeds a month, the place where we relax, talk, cry, swear and laugh about music, film, TV, art, whatever. Uh, you also get to hear your name read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. Can you read my name? I mean, I'm a sponsor. I've done it. I mean, Anna and I... You were, on last, you were on last week. You got mentioned last episode. Oh, I, sh I should have really fucking listened, shouldn't I? Yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, this week's batch of lot listeners are Andrew McDonald, Barbara van der Swag, Aaron Rosenberg, Kirsty Sider, Justin Hardy, Scott Bragg, Tom Roper, John Rambo, Tracy Kidner, James Hanna... Hey former guest, James Brewer, Rachel, Grace Carter, Emma Chippendale, Georgia, Dave Rowe, South London's Alison Sakai, Sophie Tomlinson, Hannah van der Brander, Christina Benoit de Bichauvets. Oh, I'm sorry if I didn't say your name right. Contact me and uh, upbraid me. I'm going to try again. Christine Benoit de Bichauvets. Colin Udall, Rowan, that must be the Rowan who we mentioned earlier, I hope so. Nick Rendell, Rosie Hims, Joe Westmore, Kitty Spence, Steve Skelton, Lucy Scholes, hooray! Yay! Joe and John Sills, thank you everyone for your generosity. Thank you. And that's it. Um, we're Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a fortnight. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.